The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph, the mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. God will shine forth. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together to me those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge, Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house nor goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. We're going to start by going to Isaiah chapter 44, and we're going to read a bit of that passage before we actually get into the sermon. Isaiah 44, verse 9. Those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a god or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear, they shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk, he fashions it with a plane, he marks it out with the compass, and makes it like the figure of a man. According to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. 
Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His carved image, he falls down before it and worships it, prays to it, and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand, and no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned himself aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains. O forest and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. The week I typed this particular sermon, I also typed up the week's prophecy update. As you know, at the end of the prophecy update, which is a bit of a downer at times in its contents, I add in one or two ironic things that have happened in the recent past. I do this to end on a fun note rather than on something that might be depressing or maddening. The two ironies for the week were, and neither one of these is really happy, but they are ironic. One on a tiny island that bans guns, the only prosecutor is shot dead. And two, lucky Buddhist statue topples over and crushes religious leader as it is unveiled in Thailand. It's hard to imagine two better lead-ins into the subject of the sovereignty of God. The first example is because as soon as there is a tragedy in our lives, the preeminent question which arises in our minds is, where is God in this? We may ask, how could God allow this to happen? We may ask, wasn't God big enough to stop this? A hundred variations of this line of thought will come to mind, or they may even be spoken aloud as we implicitly accuse God of not being in control. The second example could follow suit, at least for the friends and family of the monk who got scrunched. But would they have a right to ask this? They lost someone who was crushed by a concrete image of Buddha that fell over. We could stop right there and ask a few logical questions. Where did the concrete come from? Is concrete used for other things? Do we pray to or petition our concrete house? Do we pray to or petition the sidewalk? What is it that makes the lucky, or in this case, maybe not so lucky Buddha, different than a concrete urinal in a public restroom? Our text verse comes from 1 John 5, it's verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. What is it that we are worshiping when we fall down before and pray to lucky Buddha? 
It is the work of our own hands. It is the imaginations of our own mind. It is almost a form of man worship because we are giving our devotion to something that man has made. But isn't that the same as questioning why God allows the death of someone close to us? Is God required to serve our happiness? Is this the point of the Creator's existence, to serve His creation and make sure that it remains happy, content, and free from calamity? Or in this have we not finished a God in our own minds rather than allowing God to be God? God is sovereign. He is sovereign over his creation. He is sovereign over how he allows access to himself. He is sovereign over suffering. He is sovereign over all things. There is no thing which is outside of his knowledge, ability, or presence. Nothing happens apart from him. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. And he is omnipresent. Therefore, he is sovereign. And the sovereignty of God means that whatever happens has been allowed by him. We may question why something happens, and we may question how it fits into his plan, but we may not ever impute an implied state of incompetence or wrongdoing to God in the process of our questioning. Such truths are to be found in his superior word. And so let's contemplate that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is free to will or not free to will. Most Christians will acknowledge the sovereignty of God, even if we don't think about it much. We take it as an axiom that God is in full control and that he is fully capable of working things out as they should be. The questions that arise from us, such as, why did God allow this to happen, show a weakness in our understanding, and that usually comes from not being properly trained in the ways of God. But even if we get it, even if we understand that God is in complete control, we still may not understand what that means in regard to the things that we do. It would be impossible, even in a hundred sermons, to define everything about the sovereignty of God. But one of the greatest questions of all, and one of the greatest doubts of all, even by some of the finest theologians in Christian history, comes down to the question of free will. Does man have free will? If so, how far does that free will go? Does it extend to doing good? Does it extend to salvation? Or does man actually not have free will at all? One thing that is evident and clear, even without the Bible, is that God knows the future. But the Bible does proclaim it as well. From Isaiah 42, verse 9, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. He created all things in a single moment. Relativity proved this. Time, space, and matter all came into existence at the same time. None of the three can exist without the other two. They are all dependent on the existence of the others. But they could not have created themselves. We talked about that last week. If they did, then there would have been the existence of each of them before they existed, meaning all three would have existed already. A logical contradiction. Therefore, There is a being which brought them into existence who is not a part of them. The Bible says this is God, who is also, by the way, the deity of the Lord Jesus. As it says in Colossians 1, 16 and 17 from the Darby Version, because by him were created all things, the things in the heavens and 
the things upon the earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or lordships or principalities or authorities, all things have been created by him, meaning Jesus Christ, and for him. And he is before all, and all things subsist together by him. God has no matter. He is not bound by time, and he is not limited in space. Because of this, his being, for a lack of a better word, is above all matter. This means above in power, in presence, and in how it subsists. In other words, when we look at the vastness of the known universe, and in all of the power which is displayed there, he is, right now, and for all time, in control of it. We may see a tremendous storm and think, wow, what a display of God's power. We may see the enormity of a volcano and tremble at the destruction which flows from it. Or we may look to the nuclear weapons that we have created and think, what an awesome display. The mechanics of a small bit of plutonium and a few other elements combine to create such power. And from that, we can think about how God was the one who set that power into those things. But consider this. Of all of the power and energy that man has ever seen on this earth, or that he will ever see on this earth, it doesn't compare to a millionth of a second of the power released in the rest of the universe. That is the matter. But there is also space. With our telescopes of various kinds, and which peer into assorted diverse places of the universe, we have an idea of the size of what we call the known universe. The implication is that there is still the unknown universe, but of the known universe alone, which stretches out, as they say, 93.016 billion light years, not one micrometer is outside of the presence of God. If we were to travel on one of our space shuttles, which can move at five miles per second, it would take about 37,200 years to go one light year. Now, Multiply that times 93 billion light years. And now consider that in three dimensions. We may ask, where is God in this during a catastrophe? But the answer comes right back. He is here and he is everywhere else right now. That is the matter and that is the space. But there is also time, the third element which necessarily came into existence with the other two. It is often said that before God created time, he lived in the eternal state. Well, that's true, but he still lives in the eternal state. He doesn't live in our time bubble. The word eternal has two general meanings. The first is a condition where there is no beginning or end. The second is that which lasts forever. The first is the one used to describe the state God is in. The universe had a beginning, but God was there before that. It is he who did the beginning, putting it all together. That is found at various times in Scripture, such as in Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. As this is so, he is before time, and he is outside of time. Thus, logically, like being in all places at one time, and like having all power of all of the universe at all times, he also fills all time at all times. His being is present with Adam right now, and his being is hovering over the cross of Calvary right now. His being is with Jacob as he agonizes over the loss of his beloved son Joseph, and his being is on the road which Paul is taking to Damascus in order to persecute Christians in that city. 
His being is here in this church, and his being is there at the rapture. And indeed, he is present at all times, which is throughout all of time that ever existed or ever will exist right now. He is everywhere. He is at all times, and he possesses all the power contained within the two. And further, he is not limited to these things. He transcends them. This is the creator. This is God. This is the one who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush of Sinai. Again, from the Darby translation, Exodus 3.14. And God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. As these things are true of God, they establish the baseline of God's sovereignty in and over the universe. In all things and nothing accepted, God is aware of and allows all things to occur, which in fact occur. Anything which does not fit his plans for what occurs will not occur. All that he determined to occur will come to pass. He can cause or prevent anything in order for what he wills to come about. However, those things which do occur, which are morally opposed to his nature, and yet which have come about, have been allowed by him, though not directly caused by him. Please remember that. Some, when contemplating that God is sovereign and that he knows the end from the beginning, cannot accept the idea of free will in man. To them, if God knows the end from the beginning, it must be by its very nature something that negates free will in man. If God already knows what we will do, and if God has already determined how all things will come out, then they would say that we cannot be truly free moral beings. There is real fault in that thinking from several perspectives. First, God calls certain things evil. Anybody ever read that in the Bible? Something is evil to God. There is evil that God abhors. Further, man is capable of committing evil. Therefore, to say that man lacks free will is to then say that God determined the evil which he abhors. That is a logical contradiction. There are many examples of this in Scripture, but one example will suffice. From Numbers 25, something we just did not long ago, verses 1 through 3. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Those people willfully bowed down to a God, which is not God. God did not force them to do so, but he also could have forced them to not do so. Therefore, there is an allowance by God of things which stand opposed to his own moral nature. But does the fact that there is evil then mean that God is not in control? Not at all. To understand the problem of evil, how it came about, and what it means in relation to God's plan, you can go back and watch several of the early Genesis sermons, especially the sermon called, Who is the Liar? Suffice it to say that evil exists, that God, although the ultimate cause of all things, does not actively cause evil, and that logically man therefore possesses free will. God indirectly controls all things, but he does not directly cause all things to occur. This then is the exterior limits of God's sovereignty over his creation. 
Man's free will and man's accountability as to how he exercises his free will is that limit. We can do things which are contrary to God's nature, and he allows them within his own personal control of creation. Just because God knows something will happen, it does not mean that free will does not exist. What it means is that God's knowledge and his plan using that knowledge has factored in man's free will. Though the term free will is not explicitly stated in scripture, the concept is. One does not need to have specific words stated in order to have a concept explicitly stated in another way. In other words, the term original sin is not found in scripture, but it is taught implicitly and it is stated in another form explicitly. So is free will, explicitly, such as in Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 20. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. This precept is found maybe in its most profound sense in the words of Jeremiah the prophet. Moses could have said to Israel, you are commanded today to be observant to the Lord your God. But even that implies free will, because a command is, by default, something that can be disobeyed. However, a burden was laid upon Jeremiah by the Lord. It is one he strove to cast off, implying free will to do so. And yet the Lord overrode his ability to do so. Thus, his allowance of certain things only extends so far. Here's what it says in Jeremiah 20, verse 9. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. The very fact that Jeremiah willed to withhold the name of the Lord and the word of the Lord, but that he could not, proves that he had free will. But it also proves that he was not free to will. So it is with each and every one of us. But how far does what God desires to occur mean that God will override what could occur? It's an interesting question that is answered within scripture. For example, 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says this, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing, this is the Lord, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Everybody got that? That's right in the Bible. The Lord is not willing that any should perish. The Lord is not willing in that sense. But in countless other places, the same Greek word is used to show that, in fact, many will perish, such as by the hand of Paul 
in 2 Thessalonians, where it says this, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Therefore, though it is God's will that all will be saved and that none should perish, there must be a limiting factor placed on what God desires because those he desires to not perish will, in fact, perish. One of the premises of the Bible is that God is building a church out of living human beings. Jesus alluded to it in Matthew chapter 16. Paul confirms it and explains it in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 9. He says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Peter speaks of it then in 1 Peter 2 verse 7, saying, you also as living stones, here we are, we're being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. From there, both Paul and Peter say that Christ is the cornerstone of this building. There is one building and one cornerstone of those who are set to not perish. But one of the limitations of that building is that it will only be built out of those who have faith in Christ, believing his gospel message. God has set the parameters, one of which is faith, but not merely any faith will do. Rather, a properly directed faith is necessary. It takes real faith to walk into a shopping mall, pull a cord, and blow yourself up in order to destroy others in the process. There is real faith in the person that what he has been told is true. Paradise awaits, along with a bunch of perpetual virgins. The problem with that is not a lack of faith, but it is misdirected faith. And misdirected faith is, unfortunately, wasted faith. Using the same word for perish that both Paul and Peter did above in regard to those who perish and those who God wills not to perish, Jesus our Lord, Jesus the Lord says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God is willing that none should perish, but some, in fact, do perish. And the limiting factor that one should not perish is faith. But it is not any faith. It is faith in Christ Jesus. Despite the sovereignty of God, he does not force faith. Instead, he allows man the choice. But the fact that some perish does not mean that God is not sovereign. Just because God does not actively cause and direct all things, people assume that he's not sovereign. Why couldn't God keep my husband from dying? But if God must do everything that he can do, and everything that he wills to do, then all things would be done and there would be nothing to do. But God has put limitations on himself in order for things to come about in a way where we can participate in his creation. Along with those limitations, he has set the parameters and he has given guidelines. Some of those are known to us. They're recorded in nature. For example, we know that a certain thing is going to happen at a certain temperature, or if you mix this chemical with this chemical, you're going to have an explosion. Those parameters are set, right? They're also recorded in his word. An example of this is found in the book of Romans chapter 10. Please listen and take these words to heart. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him 
of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Think of Ray and Jess over in Papua New Guinea right now, giving their lives up, the comfort of America living in a very squalid place to bring this message to people. How can they go if they're not sent? How is it possible? Keep thinking on that. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God has set the limitations on himself as to how the message to keep those he wills to not perish can do so. One of them is that he has given us the word of God. And within that limitation, he has set the parameters. There must be someone who will proclaim that message. But there are then other implied parameters because a person is limited by time, by movement, by funding, and so on. A person cannot simply stand on a mountain, shout out the gospel, and expect everyone to hear it in all of the world and throughout all of Christian history. And so there are set natural and written parameters which must be adhered to. And yet, these are limited by guidelines. As we saw, faith is how the message moves one from perish to not perish. And that faith must be proper faith for this to occur. But some might then say that this dispels the idea of God's sovereignty. Rather, it upholds it. If there is a message of restoration with God, and if that message is exclusive of all but one avenue, and if that avenue has defined parameters and guidelines which come from God, then it means that God is sovereign over the very process which he at first seems to be incompetent at controlling. What this tells us is that God has put a burden on us if we care about what he desires. What did it say? God desires that none to perish, right? His will, including his will that none should perish, is actually tied up in our will in regard to that same precept. If our will says, I don't care that some are perishing, then he has allowed our will to override what he wills. Think about that. As you live in a nice house with a big car and lots of money in the bank, what could you be doing with that for people in Uganda that have never heard the message, for people in Alaska or wherever in this world there are people that have never heard the message? I'll read it again. If our will says, I don't care that some are perishing, then he has allowed our will to override what he wills because it says he wills that none perish. This is certain because Paul says that the message which has been given must go through us. And further, that the one who carries that message cannot do so unless he is sent. And so as you sit here unwilling to assist those who desire to go forth to share the gospel, your uncaring will is at least in part the cause of God's willingness that none should perish to not come about. How does that move you? Or does it just not matter to you? One problem with man's view of God's sovereignty is that man places far too high of a view and a value on himself or on the things that he possesses or loves than the Bible actually reveals concerning how God views those things. The Bible says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 
Now, isn't that funny? That's the psalm I read just a moment ago, and I had no idea 10 weeks ago that I would be reading that, but there it is. The earth is the Lord's in everything in it. As God, as we have already seen, possesses time as well as space and matter, then he possesses all things once and forever. For man to perish, it means that he perishes from the stream of time going forward. But God does not stop possessing that man at the time he existed. And therefore, God always possesses that man. And he may have been a good man or a bad man. But to us, a good man or a bad man is not the same as it is to God. A person to God is, by default, bad. That is the doctrine of original sin. Sin is bad. Man has sin. Man is bad. But we love people around us without taking that into consideration. God does not. Those who do not have the sin problem corrected perish from a certain point and forever after they are done, but they were already done because of the sin in them. God is not out of control when someone perishes. Rather, he has controlled what was already bad by not allowing that person to continue. I'll take you to Genesis chapter 3 and I'll show you that. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The value in man is not in the state in which he arrived. It is in the state which he will become if he comes to God through Christ. That is why Christ came. It was to allow a change in the default position from bad to good. Therefore, God, the person of Jesus, came into the stream of humanity in order to bring about the necessary change for man to go from bad to good. Was God under an obligation to do this? Absolutely not. No. Could God have destroyed the entire world? Yes. God did destroy the whole world once, with the exception of just eight souls. Therefore, God's sovereignty is not in question. The goodness of man and the usefulness of man to God is. God sovereignly allowed eight to live. God sovereignly chose Israel to bring forth the Messiah. God sovereignly stepped out of his eternal realm, and God sovereignly set the parameters based on these things to bring man from bad to good. He is not out of control. Rather, he is in complete control. He is allowing things to occur despite that control in order for the man of value, meaning the man brought from bad to good, to come about. Our arbitrary assigning the concept of bad and good to those around us is not reflective of how God assigns those same values. This is why Solomon was able to say this in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. We look at the plan of redemption and we say, if God is not actively redeeming all men, he must not be in control. But all men are bad. 
Therefore, that any are redeemed at all shows that God is sovereign over the entire process, both for those who are perishing and for those who are being saved. The parameters are set. The guidelines are given. I read you right out of Romans. Right out of Romans. Remember that? You got to have a preacher. You got to send the guy. The message is not going to be heard otherwise. Therefore, that any are redeemed at all shows that God is sovereign over the entire process, both for those who are perishing and those who are being saved. The parameters are set, the guidelines are given, and God's sovereignty stands. What he determines is advanced no matter which occurs. It may not be our will, but our will is not always God's will, and his standards take priority over our fallen state and our preferences, desires, and life choices. However, when our will is in accord with God's will, then there is a chance that what God is willing to happen, meaning that a particular bad person will become a good person, will happen. If not, then his work for that unchanged bad person will come to pass. He will be cast into the lake of fire. Both the sovereignty of God and the free will of man are on prominent display here. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high. Look and see who has created these things and who is his son? Who brings out their host by number from darkness to light? He calls them all by name. This, by the greatness of his might, he will bring himself glory and fame. Through the strength of his power, not one is missing. All the heavenly host is accounted for from day unto day and hour unto hour. And as the waves ceaselessly wash up on the shore, great is God and worthy is he of our praise. Glorious is God from everlasting to everlasting unto eternal days. Our second thought today is God is sovereign over salvation. If God is sovereign over all things, as is clearly the case, even if he doesn't actively work out all things, then God must be sovereign over our salvation. Jonah, from the belly of the great fish, confirms this with the words, salvation is of the Lord. Man cannot save himself because he is already condemned. Jesus says that explicitly in John 3.18. As we are condemned already, then to become uncondemned must come from without ourselves, just as the default state of a computer must be changed from outside. Even if a computer was programmed to change its own default settings under certain circumstances, the programming had to come from outside itself originally. Unfortunately, and because of this, the idea of such a dramatic change in man's default position, and because man cannot change himself, Certain aberrant doctrines have arisen over time to say that man is incapable of being changed apart from an active working of God. Such a view proclaims that this is the only way to confirm God's sovereignty over the salvation process. If he doesn't actively do every step of the changing, then it somehow would mean that he is not sovereign over what occurs. But the fallacy of that is seen in the computer, which is given instruction to change its own default position. The instructions are given, and they may or may not ever occur. But if the parameters which have been placed into the computer are met, the default position changes. There was no active participation by the programmer, and yet he has remained sovereign over the process of change. The error of, for example, Calvinism 
is in perceiving how the process of change is effected in the man. The question for man is, as scripture declares that man's nature is condemned already and also incapable of saving himself, then how is it possible for a person to choose or desire a relationship with God? The Calvinist answer is, he cannot. Therefore, he must be predestined by God for regeneration in order to believe and then to be saved. This makes the assumption that man cannot see what is good. But that is proven false both in human nature and in Scripture. Man is not incapable of seeing that which is good, nor is he incapable of pursuing that which he sees. Further, Calvinism incorrectly uses the words of Paul to show that man cannot make a choice for salvation. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that apart from Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Calvinism says that one who is dead cannot choose life, nor can he bring about a change in himself any more than a rock could. This is what is known as a category mistake. It's a fallacy or an error in thinking. A category mistake is the error of assigning to something a quality or action that can properly be assigned to things only of another category. Calvinism has taken the category of dead in trespasses and sins, meaning spiritually disconnected from God, and it is assigned that same category to living man, who is a rational, cognitive organism that can choose both good and evil. Because of this, Calvinism produces a convoluted theology concerning salvation, which says that one, man is dead, Two, God regenerates man, meaning he is born again by God. And then three, man chooses Christ. And then based on that choice, four, he is saved. From this error, the other principal points of Calvinism arise, each based on the original error, and therefore each continuing that original error and expanding on it. Quite possibly the greatest error of this failed theological system is the doctrine of limited atonement, which says that Jesus only died for the elect and not for all people, and thus only the elect are saved. That contradicts scripture absolutely, but it's still nonsense. Limited atonement supposedly stands in opposition to another heresy known as unlimited atonement in the sense that Christ died for all people and that all are therefore saved. If you want that, go down to the Trinitarian Church. There's one on, uh, I believe, on Proctor Road. Go there one time. They'll tell you that all are saved. There's no such thing as hell. And then never go again, because what's the point? You don't need to learn doctrine. You can do whatever you want, right? That is unlimited atonement, meaning that Christ died for everybody, and therefore they're all saved, is a second category mistake made by Calvinists. The words limited atonement and unlimited atonement do not stand alone as the only quality which is assigned to the process of salvation. John 3.16 says that Christ died for the world, meaning the people of the world, and that whoever, meaning anyone, believes in him would not perish, but would be granted everlasting life. This is substantially repeated elsewhere in various ways and degrees throughout the New Testament. Therefore, The term unlimited atonement is appropriate, but it is only so potentially, not actually. Christ died for every person on this planet, but only certain people will be saved. And the term limited atonement is appropriate actually, not because God has limited the atonement, but because we have limited it. 
either through negligence and transmitting the word to those who could be saved, think of Ray Willett over in Papua New Guinea, or through rejection of the word presented to the individual. God, through the giving of his son, has given the potential for all men to hear the word, and then for all who hear the word to be saved. But he has only granted that salvation actually to those who hear and who then respond in accord with his word. This is perfectly seen in the words of John from his first epistle, second chapter. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the whole world, unlimited atonement potential. The sacrifice of Christ is not limited to the elect except in how it is received or rejected. Election is made based upon the free will exercise of faith in the object of rightly directed faith, meaning the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Understanding this, we can see that God is wholly sovereign over the process of salvation. Man fell, Man is in the pit, and God must bring him out. In this, he has developed the remedy, he has prescribed both the parameters and the guidelines, and he has limited himself in the process. To say that God must first regenerate the man, as Calvinists do, is to say that he must make a second move in salvation, apart from the giving of his son. I'm sorry, this is not found in Scripture. God has made the move. He has entered into the sphere of his creation, and he now offers that to the people of the world. Again, just because God does not actively select and regenerate the man, it does not mean that God is not sovereign over the process. The exact opposite is true. If we were the computer mentioned earlier, the default setting is already set. Condemned. But there is a program which has been included in the process, it's here in my hand, which, if enabled, changes the default setting. Unlike a computer which cannot see good and bad, man has that ability. Again, Genesis 3.22 says this. Where is it? Genesis 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. And what is the tree of life picturing? Jesus Christ, the cross of Calvary. We can reach out our hand, and we can take that salvation, that tree of life. The fact that you are listening to this sermon, whether saved or not, testifies to this. Not that this is a good sermon, but you are freely deciding if it is or not, and I hope you are not disappointed. When you execute the appropriate command, the default setting is changed. God's sovereignty is seen in that he has shown the way of salvation, he has effected and provided the means of salvation, and he has established the mode of salvation. All who are to be saved will follow the path. They will hear the gospel message, and they will place faith in what they have heard. For those who do not hear, or for those who reject what they have heard, God is sovereign over that. For those who do hear and respond, God was and is sovereign over that. I'm going to take you to the book of John. Let me, verse comes to mind right now. Book of John, I'm going to take you to chapter 12. And it says there in John 12, verse 32, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. All who are to be saved will be saved. 
because of Jesus Christ if they call on Jesus Christ. No part of the salvation process is out of the control of God, and the glory is given to God through the process. Though upholding what would otherwise be the sovereignty of God, the Calvinistic model does not bring glory to God because it does not follow the process of salvation as recorded in the Word of God. But on the other side of the aisle are the countless other religious expressions which are found in the world, both supposedly Christian and those outside of the realm of that sphere. There is one common thread between every single one of them, be it Roman Catholicism or the Hebrew Roots Movement, or Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, and so on. That common thread is works. For non-Christians, it is works in order to please God so that the man can be saved, whatever that salvation means to the individual. For them, it cries out, I am my own Savior, and God will accept my works as such. For supposed Christians, it means works in order to please God apart from what Christ has done. For them, it cries out, God has sent the Savior, but I still must save myself. It is a rejection of the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ, and it is a desire to show God where his deficiencies were and what the person can do to correct those deficiencies. Both deny the sovereignty of God over the salvation process. The sovereignty of God says that he is in complete control of all things, but that he has allowed certain things to occur apart from his direct control. This is true in creation, such as an exploding volcano. It is true in the daily process of our lives, either in harmony with him or apart from him. And it is true in the process of salvation, which restores the harmony between us and him. Concerning God's sovereignty in the process of salvation, it is just as necessary for God to allow man free will in his decision-making process as it is for him to impel his will at any time and in any way that he so chooses. This is because his word has given man the right, the duty, and the privilege, and indeed the responsibility to carry this message forward. As his word is a reflection of who he is, then to effect the transmission of this message apart from man whom he has commissioned to do so would be to interfere in his own sovereign decree over the very process of salvation which he has ordained. And what I'm saying is that he has said in this word, this is how man is to be saved. And he gave us, for example, what I read you from Paul. That is God's decree. This is God's word. God does not change. When he speaks, it is done. There is no change in God. Now, I want you to know, I listened, somebody sent me a link to somebody yesterday. I hear this, I've been hearing this since I was at Southern Evangelical Seminary years and years ago. Oh, Muslims all over the world are having dreams of Jesus and coming to Jesus. That is not true. That is not true because that would be God circumventing the very process that he has given us. And therefore, this is not an eternal decree, and this is not the God of the Bible, and the Bible might as well be tossed out. It is not true that people are having dreams of Jesus and coming to Jesus. They may be having dreams of Jesus, and they may be coming to Jesus, but it is not God doing that. They may have heard the word on the street and then went home and had a dream like you and I all do, and those things happen in our head. But God will not go around the sovereign decree that he has made in the giving of his word. He has said that. I'll read it to you again. Let me go back to Romans chapter 10. I want to read this so you understand exactly what I'm saying. Romans chapter 10, and it says... How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? 
And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? That is the means of salvation that has been given to us to carry forward. And God is not going to circumvent that process. He's not going to do it. And this must take into consideration that not everyone who transmits this message has the same reason for doing so. Some will do it because of their love for God. Some will do it because of their love for money. Some desire to be famous. Some might simply use the gospel as a way to travel to exotic locations. I do know people that have done that. Who knows? One may simply want to marry the preacher's daughter, and becoming a preacher is the surest way for that to happen. Surprisingly, God has factored all of that into the transmission of his word to the people of the world. God, who is infinitely wise and who is in complete control of all things, has done these things to bring himself glory and to bring restoration and fellowship to those who were once far off, but whom he has now brought near through the precious, purifying, and all-sufficient shed blood of Jesus Christ. That is the story for today. God is sovereign. God has given us a plan, and we are responsible for getting it out. As I've been thinking, every time I've practiced this sermon, making new notes and things, I've thought this every single time. In America, we have a budget that is in the trillions of dollars. We have a budget in the Defense Department, which is $700 billion or something, whatever. Maybe it's more now. This is a nation that was started on Christian values. Every single large seminary, the Ivy League seminaries, were started for one purpose, was to train up pastors to go into the new world and convert people to Christianity and send them around the world. That was their purpose. All of the money that we had, if we used that money for the glory of God, every person on this planet would be evangelized within two years. Every single human being on this planet. It will be many years before that comes about. It will be done by people that are willing to give of themselves to get other people out and do this. We are responsible as this nation for the money that we spend. I'm not saying not to have an army. I'm completely behind our military. I was in it. Nine years, four months, and 15 days of fun, okay? But we, we have certain responsibility, and we're neglecting that. And people are dying apart from Jesus Christ because of that, because God is not going to go into somebody's head and say, you know, you're going to die tomorrow, and you need me today. He's not going to do it. It's up to you to get the message out. Our closing verse comes from Philippians chapter 1. It's verses 14 through 18. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. But the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. I'm so thankful that there are people out there sharing this word. Tracks on the wall. That hasn't emptied out in a while. I get them and I put them up there and I have to remind you and then it starts emptying again. Take all the tracks you want. If you're out there and you want me to send them to you, I send them in big envelopes to people all the time. Just put it on the table. It doesn't cost you anything. So what if you're embarrassed? You think he wasn't embarrassed on the cross with absolutely no clothing on in front of his mother, bleeding to death? It was a shame. He did that shame for you. Hand out a track. Please. I've got a question for you before we finish up today. Somebody went in Maserati, maybe. This is not going to be easy. You've got to know uh, theology, not the Bible, theology. What are 
the five points of the failed theological system known as Calvinism. Five points of Calvinism. There's an, uh, uh, an acronym or whatever you call it. The, what? Tulip. Okay. So you get a wheel so far. Can you name what they are? Okay. The first one, Tulip. Total depravity. Now, Calvinists say total depravity. That means that man is completely, the image of God is completely erased in man. He is incapable of calling on God. That is proven false by the book of James where it says that we curse man made in God's image. So he's even speaking about the image of God in man, you know, after the cross. Okay, so that's not correct. Total depravity to a moderate Calvinist, you might say, would be that the image of God in man is effaced. That means it's marred. It is not erased. We have a marred image of God, but that can be changed when we see the good in Christ and we call on it and we are converted, okay? The second one is unconditional election. That means that the people that God chooses, he chooses and they have no choice in the matter. It is unconditional. You are going to be saved and you are not going to be saved and you're going to be saved and that is it. I have elected you. It is unconditional and it will come to pass, okay? That's obviously shown false in our talk today. The next one we talked about, limited atonement. Christ only died for the elect, nobody else. You weren't saved, you were, all these people I just pointed out. He died for you and not for anybody else. That is also shown false. Christ died for all people. He died for all people. Unlimited atonement potential. He did not actually die for all people, though, because many people will not hear the message because of our negligence or because they simply reject the word, okay? Irresistible grace. God irresistibly draws you. Once he has predestined you, he's going to draw you and you have no choice in the matter. You are irresistibly drawn to God. Listen, I know that I'm saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and there are days where I am not irresistibly drawn to Christ. I'm in a bad mood and I say things I shouldn't say, etc. That is nonsense. And the last one is P, perseverance of the saints. God will ensure that you persevere to the end. Okay, I will agree with the doctrine of eternal salvation, but not of perseverance of the saints, because it is not of us in any way, shape, or form. We will not persevere. We persevere only because of him, okay? So there you go. That's the uh, failed system of Calvinism, and that's the one I chose for this particular sermon, but there are lots of other doctrines that we could have done. I just picked the one that is most prevalent out there. Okay, we're going to have communion. Wait, we should say a prayer first. Heavenly Father. We thank you so much for the chance to come into your presence and to uh, share in your word. And Lord, we certainly thank you for the people that are out there in the world transmitting your word to people that have never heard it before, that are willing to live in difficult conditions, filthy conditions, lonely conditions, etc., for the sake of your word. How precious it is that they do that and help us to be responsible and give to them and make sure that they are taken care of and that when they come back, they're greeted with love and a chance to explain themselves in whatever church they go to. Give us hearts for that, Lord. And Lord, you heard all of the prayer requests at the beginning of this church, and there are probably a million others out there of people that are suffering and have difficulties. And we would pray for them right now that you would be with them through their troubles, and if it's your will, to heal them. And if it's not, then to let them know that you are with them and to be a, just a constant comfort in their lives at that time. Lord, we do thank you for the chance to be in your presence. We thank you for the Lord's Supper and what that means for us as believers. And so we commit that to you and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.